0: Good morning, everyone. I think most of you know who I am, but I'll introduce myself to those of you who don't. My name is Carrie Smith. I'm the executive director here at Freedom Village. So that basically means I do all the behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, I've been in Korea now for about 15 years. My wife and I, uh, who is Korean, have been married for 10 years now. And I've been working here in this building... For just about just a little bit longer than that. Anyway, I'm excited to have this opportunity to share with you this morning. Why don't we start with a word of prayer? God, I'm thankful that we're able to, to do this again, to dig into your word, even though it's it's online. Um, we're still exploring your truth and trying to to learn about you so that we can grow as people so that we can grow in our relationship with you. And I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for each of us this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so I'd like you to turn with me to Luke 13, verse 6. We're we're continuing our parable series this morning. And I'm going to be taking us through the parable of the barren fig tree. Here's a picture of a fig tree. As you can see, it's a very leafy tree, very common in Palestine and still common, actually. Um, something we should take note of here is that the fruit always appears before the leaves. So a barren fig tree doesn't necessarily mean that it's brown with nothing on it. It just means there's no fruit. All right, so let's let's uh, look at Luke's... 13 Verse 6 And he, Jesus, told this parable A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to his vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put fertilizer on it then if it should bear fruit next year well and good but if not you can cut it down this is one of Jesus's shorter parables and so it actually gives me a lot of time to get into the background and the context leading up to it so in order to do that let's back up a little bit let's take a look at verse 1 Jesus is speaking to a crowd here and preceding this parable. He's been talking to the crowd about the kingdom of heaven. He's been talking about his own return. And he's been talking about the last days. And so essentially he's been talking about life and death. And so understandably he goes on to give a call to repentance. So chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So meaning these Galileans were killed while they were offering their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. No. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So we read here that Jesus is referring to two past events. And his point is basically, bad things can happen to anyone. Jesus knows a common belief in the ancient world at this time is that bad things happen to sinners. Bad things happen to people who deserve it, not righteous people. Um, If they were really good, if they were really good people, that wouldn't have happened to them. And Jesus is trying to show that this isn't true. Being killed, whether at the hand of a tyrant like Pilate or during an accident like the tower falling on on several Galileans, has nothing to do with how righteous or unrighteous someone is. In fact, we're all going to die. But unless you repent, he says, you will really die, you will perish. I'm not really going to get into the detail of these two events, simply because we don't have enough time. But if you're curious, I recommend checking out a commentary on Luke. For those of you who don't know, a commentary is a book by a scholar or a group of scholars who explain the meaning, the historical context, and the biblical context of books of the Bible. I use an app called Olive Tree on my iPad that has a bunch of free commentaries, but you can also buy commentaries or you can find them on websites such as Bible Gateway or Bible Hub. And I point that out because when we read the Bible, we all have questions. And using a good commentary from someone you trust, that's really important, someone you trust, or comparing several commentaries is a great way to find answers for questions that come up as we're reading God's Word. I really encourage you as you read your Bible to write down questions you have and to do your best to find answers. Um, I would love to teach a class here sometime uh, on how to get the most out of your time in the Bible because I think most people find the Bible hard to understand at best and at worst end up misunderstanding or misinterpreting it. But you definitely have to dig into it yourself. Don't just rely on pastors and podcasts. Okay, so hopefully that's my only rabbit trail today. So like I mentioned before, I'm not going to get into the, these two events that Jesus is talking about here. But I will say that he is emphasizing to his audience the need for repentance. And this parable, the parable of the barren fig tree, is explaining and illustrating why they need to repent. Jesus tells these stories, these parables, Um and he's, he's always either illustrating what he's been teaching or he's responding to a question or he's observing and responding to what people are thinking. And just before the parable starts in verse 5, he says, repent or perish. And now in verses 6 through 9, the parable, he's trying to drive that point home and, and make it more clear. But the funny thing is that he wants to make it more clear only for the people that are ready to hear he knows that some people are not going to get it and in in Matthew 13 we can see after he tells the parable of the sower he says this he says whoever has ears let them hear and his his disciples are like why don't you just speak plainly why don't you just and explain your point why don't you just why do you have to speak so mysteriously all the time Um, In verse 15, Jesus explains why. He says, For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and I would heal them. This is important for us to understand this and talk about this when we're looking at parables. Parables. Jesus is purposefully making it challenging. He wants his hearers to meditate on it and think it through. That's why I prayed at the beginning that we would have ears to hear. So what is Jesus saying here in Luke 13, verse 6? Why does he use this story of the fig tree to make his point? Before we get to that, I want to take a little bit more time and, and Explain some things that I think will help us understand what he's talking about. So I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Jeremiah is trying to show Judah where they're headed if they continue down a path of sin. So verse 5, and we're going to be reading to verse 10. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an un- uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, or some, some translations say whose confidence is in the Lord. Verse 8, he is like a tree planted by water, that sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. In this passage, Jeremiah is describing two types of people. The first person is a person who trusts in themselves. And the second person is a person who trusts in God. So let's break this down a little bit. The person who trusts in themselves has three characteristics listed here. Number one, they trust in man. In other words, we could say that this person is a humanist. A humanist is a person who believes that human beings are essentially good. That we are continually improving through science and technology. And and just generally as a world, we're getting better. And that we are moving towards a time when there will be peace and prosperity across the whole world. Um, just look at Star Trek. I like Star Trek, but it's a show based on humanism, and most hu- most humanists look to science to try to understand the world. A- and I'm not saying that science is a bad thing. Science is a good thing. It does help us understand to the wor- It does help us understand the world to an extent. But there are questions that science cannot answer, like why are we here what is our purpose where did we come from so that's that's humanism and this man being described in Jeremiah is a humanist he trusts in himself and he trusts in mankind the second characteristic of this person described by Jeremiah is someone who makes flesh their strength what does that mean the person This person believes that they are all they need. This person believes that if they just focus, do their best, look inside themselves, they will find the strength to overcome. They will find that inner strength that will help them overcome anything. There's a whole category of books based on this idea, and they're called self-help books. Maybe you've heard of self-help books. Um, Here are a few titles from the self-help genre. Awake the Giant Within. You are more than enough. How to do everything and be happy. All these books have the same theme. Pick yourself up. Believe in yourself. Go out there and be successful. You can be a better you if you just focus. Does that sound familiar? Do you, do you maybe even find yourself saying, what's wrong with that? Um, can I show you what the Bible says about that? Let's look at Mark 7. This is Mark seven twenty one through 23. 4. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, idolatry, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. And then Romans 3, 9 through 12. Are we Jews any better than Gentiles he's talking about? Not at all, for we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one, no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. And then Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And then back to this passage in Jeremiah 17, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Um, One more, 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We, we are all born into sin, and whether you believe it or not, your natural tendency is always going to be about you first. No one naturally becomes closer to God and a better person without effort and without perseverance. But we do become more selfish without even trying. That's just, that's just how it works, because we are born sinful. And we are always going to gravitate Towards the flesh. So, a minute ago, we talked about self help and how the world says you can be a better you if you just focus. I need to say that the Bible's not saying that you can't be more disciplined if you set goals and focus on being more disciplined. You can. I mean, self help books usually do have good strategies for being more disciplined, but that's where it ends. If we want real, lasting change, we've got to go deeper. And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. He alone offers real, lasting change. So back to Jeremiah 17. The person who trusts in themselves, number one, is a humanist. They believe we are all essentially good. Number two, they trust in their own strength. And thirdly, Jeremiah says, their heart turns away from the Lord. The message puts it this way. They set God aside as a dead weight. God means nothing to this person. So not only do they, do they not believe that God exists, they believe believing in him would hold them back like a dead weight. I'm sure you've come across this before, right? Neo-atheists like Richard Dawkins believe that religion is just superstition that that holds humanity back from real progress. So you're going to come across people like this. And that's the first person that Jeremiah 17 describes. What does the other person look like? Um, Verse 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. So this person, this person also has three characteristics. Number one, they trust in the Lord. He is planted by water. Number two, they find strength in the Lord. His roots are planted by the stream. In other words, they're feeding and growing and anchored in the Lord. And then number three, when the heat comes, they are not afraid. In fact, they're still flourishing even in the drought. Their leaves are green and they're still fruit. So I want us to look at a diagram now to help us better understand what Jeremiah is really getting at and Uh, I'm going to get to our parable eventually, but this is really important for us to understand first. So at the top of this diagram, you can see the sun. The sun represents the heat mentioned in verse 8 of this passage. So what is the heat? The heat is the circumstances of life. And these two trees you see represent our responses The shrub in the desert from verse 6 represents the sinful responses to the heat or the circumstances of life. And then on the opposite side is the healthy tree, the tree planted by water. And this tree represents obedient responses. So we've got sinful responses to the heat, the shrub in the desert, and obedient responses to the heat, the healthy tree. Now, I'm not going to tell you to choose to do the right thing. Don't choose the wrong things. End of the sermon. Let's pray. If you've grown up in church, you probably heard that. Um, But I want to go deeper than that, because this passage in Jeremiah goes deeper than that. And the parable that we'll eventually get to goes deeper than that. So let's go deeper. The roots of these trees of these responses to circumstances, are our hearts. Remember, Jeremiah describes two kinds of people, the person who trusts in themselves and the person who trusts in God. And then in verse 9, he starts talking about the heart. Why? The heart is the root of our being. That's where our passions, our wants, our motives, and idols are found. So if you look here at the roots connected to the shrub in the desert, these roots represent an idolatrous heart. And the shrub in the desert represents sinful responses or a sinful response. If, if the shrub in the desert represents that, then where do sinful responses come from? They come from the roots, right? The, an idolatrous heart. So you see, you can't just stop at sinful responses. You've got to deal with the roots. We can't just try to make good choices and try hard to change our habits. That's what self-help books tell you to do. So, So what are your roots? Well, what are your idols? If you're struggling with addiction, then your idol is probably pleasure. If you're struggling with anger, then your idol is probably pride, right? How dare that person do that to me? Um, I started driving in Seoul this in January this year, and I've struggled with that. How dare that guy cut me off? He shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be driving like that. Um, but that's pride. Sometimes I... I <laughs> Sometimes they really shouldn't be driving like that, right? But how am I responding to these circumstances? Is it a sinful response or is it an obedient response? And honestly, we could dive into specific idols of the heart, but that's probably a whole other sermon. So what I want us to understand and get our heads around today is that what you do How you react to things comes from a much deeper place than you realize. Sinful responses come out of idolatrous motives. Let's look at the other side, the tree that has fruit. Even when the heat is coming down, when circumstances are tough, um, this tree represents obedient responses. And I have to say, you can choose to do the right thing and still be wrong. You can choose to do the right thing because you want to look good. But guess what? That's an idolatrous motive. It's pride. It's not going to produce fruit. The only thing that's going to produce fruit uh, is God-pleasing motives. And that's our next part of the the diagram. If I'm choosing to do the right thing because I'm motivated by love, that's a God-pleasing motive. And you're probably thinking, it's hard enough to respond obediently to circumstances, and I'm supposed to do it with pure motives too? And you're right, that's a great question. You can't just conjure it up, because conjuring it up is trying to live off your own strength. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is talking about. The person who trusts in themselves more than, more than God. So what do we do? How can we have pure hearts with pure motives? And the answer is we can't. On our own, we can't. There's kind of this underlying belief in Christian circles that we've got to be holy, we've got to be completely humble, and have it together before we can come to God. And that's a lie. Because you and I can't do it. Jesus came here because we can't do it. We can't have a pure heart with pure motives unless God changes our heart into a pure heart with pure motives. And that's where the bottom of this chart comes into focus. It's, it's the cross. The cross in this diagram represents the gospel truths that are the source and empowerment of transforming our hearts from self-centered, idolatrous motives to God-centered, worship-filled motives. And that's where the bottom of the chart comes into focus. It's the cross The cross in this diagram represents the gospel truths that are the source and empowerment of transforming our hearts from self-centered, idolatrous motives to God-centered, worship-filled motives. Paul David Tripp, write that name down. Paul David Tripp has a book called How People Change. Go read that book. Paul David Tripp says, we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day to help rid ourselves of the sinful responses to life that are driven by idolatrous motives. We've got to fill our hearts with the truth every day to help get rid of the sinful responses to life that come out of idolatrous motives. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, work out what God is working in you. That's my, that's my paraphrase, but it's essentially what it says. Work out what God is working in you. And it, it's not enough to agree, to agree with what I'm saying, to agree with what Pastor James says when he's preaching, to agree with what you read in the Bible. You have to live it out. And that's how you work it out. When the Spirit of God is working in us and we are working out what He is working in, that's when our hearts begin to change. And we can't explain it. It's not our effort that changes hearts. It's the mysterious act of God changing our hearts because we we took a step of obedience. So we have a barrier to cross over here. And, and you know, maybe at first you're not going to choose to obey or respond with obedience completely out of a pure heart and with pure motives but as you choose to respond to the heat respond to the circumstances of life with obedience as you choose to present yourselves as living as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god he makes our hearts holy and pleasing and out of that obedience comes the fruit, the blessings. And I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about worldly success. I'm not talking about happiness in the way that the world defines happiness. But I'm talking here about love. I'm talking about joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I'm not ruling out that God could bless you in other ways. He can. But these are the blessings that matter. And these are the blessings that will last for eternity. So if the fruit, the blessings are the, res- are the result of obedience, then what is the result of disobedience or sinful responses? And the result is consequences. Consequences. And we know this, don't we? We know that there's consequences for doing wrong. But sometimes we do wrong anyway. And if you're sitting there right now and and you feel like you've lost hope, you don't see a way out, you've tried to choose to respond obediently, but you failed over and over and over, I want you to hear this. This is the word of God. No temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There's that word again, idolatry. Why does Paul say that? This is from 1 Corinthians 10, by the way. Why does Paul say that? flee from idolatry because it's what drives sinful responses, right? John 3.19 says the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Second Thessalonians 2.12, they, he's talking about men of lawlessness, they did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So why does Paul say flee from idolatry? Because you you can't choose to obey if you bow down to the sin, if you let it consume you. And it may not feel like you've let it consume you, but if you feel like there's no way out, if you've lost hope, then you've let it consume you. The Bible, which we all believe is God's truth, says two things here. Number one, no temptation has overtaken you. And number two, you can flee idolatry. It's possible. So how? How do we flee idolatry? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? If your hand causes you to sin, what? Cut it off. And not literally, by the way. Um, He's using a metaphor. Let me modernize it. Um, If your smartphone causes you to sin, get a flip phone. And if your flip phone causes you to sin, you can do without it. You don't need it. It's better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell, Jesus says. So this is just an illustration, but this is the truth. This is the word of God. We need to feed ourselves with these truths. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. All right. That was just my intro. Let's get back to our parable, Luke 13:6. Let me read this again. I'm kidding by the way. We're almost we're almost done. All right, Luke 13:6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on fertilizer. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So we've just, we've just scratched the surface today, but my goal was for us to understand that there's a lot more going on than just your anger or your lustful thinking or your selfishness. God can change our idolatrous hearts. We don't even need to fully understand it. But we do need to let him dig around us, like the parable talks about, pull out those weeds, and fertilize the ground so we can grow and we can change. And we allow him to do that when we come to him in repentance and when we come to him in surrender. Remember, just before this parable, Jesus has just talked about repentance. He's just said in verse 5, repent or perish. And then he tells this parable. And he ends the parable by saying, if the tree Should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Do you understand what he's saying? He's giving us time to repent, but the time is going to run out. And so, what this parable is saying is we not only need to repent and surrender our lives to him, we need to allow Jesus to feed us and to fertilize us so we can grow. So he can change our hearts. And how do we allow him to do that? Well, repentance is a good start. Surrender is a good start. But we can only be fed food that we put into our own mouths and that we chew on ourselves. Do you see what I'm saying? We need to get into the word. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to meditate on it. We need to memorize it. You need it more than you think you do, because if we really believed Jesus is our daily bread and our living water, we would be in the Word every day, and we would be spending time in prayer talking with our Savior every day. How often do you forget to eat? Um, we feel those hunger pains, right? And We get hangry. <laughs> I won't say anything about my wife right now. We get hangry and we think, I need to eat something. Um, But how often do you forget to eat spiritual food? Are you spiritually hungry? Are you hungry for spiritual things and you don't even know it? Because our spirits need food too. But maybe you're looking where you shouldn't be looking for food. And there's good food over here. But this food, it's not easy to swallow. You've got to chew on it. It takes time to digest. Um, But this food over here tastes really good. It's soft. It goes down easy. But it's junk food. We don't need that food. The truth that Jesus is trying to communicate in this parable is this. He's saying, you have another chance. If you let me, I'll dig out that bad stuff, and I'll give you plenty of good stuff that will help you grow. I'll give you that stuff that you need, uh, my word, a relationship with me. But you've got to repent of the idols that you've let into your heart. You've got to surrender your way of doing things and trust that I can dig up that bad stuff and trust that I have good stuff to give you that will help you grow. And then you will produce fruit. Do we believe that the Bible is our daily bread? Do we believe that we can change? Do we believe that we can actually produce fruit? Do we believe that we can be full of peace? Do we believe that we can be full of patience, full of kindness, full of goodness, full of faithfulness, full of gentleness, full of self-control, full of joy, and full of love? Believe it, because God says you can. God says, I'm here for you. That's that's what this parable is talking about. Jesus wants to work in our lives, but we have to allow him to. Um, we have to allow him to. We have to come before him with a heart of repentance and surrender and allow him to. So I encourage you be in the word. Get in the word. And if you don't understand it, like I was talking about before, um, talk to someone. Um, find, a conc- find a commentary. Find some tools online. I'll help you out. You can email me or come talk to me. I'll help you wrestle with the truths of the Bible. They're not easy. We have to chew on them for a long time. Um, but they're worth it. They're worth it because they're real food for our spirits. All right, let me pray for us.